Thank you so much, Pastor Brown, for inviting me to speak today. It's uh, a real joy. I really mean that, and a great blessing to be here. I've never been in the worship service in this location. I, uh, Pastor Brown said I've taught in uh, some classes here or across the room over here for a couple of times, and uh, I've followed the development of your new building. Ken has driven me all around this area looking for buildings in the past. <laughs> we go to lunch on Thursday, and, and he says, let me take you to this place. Let me take you to this place. Let me take you. So I've been, I've been to 100 buildings around here. So I'm, finally, I'm glad you finally got something so we don't have to keep traveling around. But <laughs> I've never been in there with, with you at this time, and it's a real blessing. Enjoyed every part of it, and hope we can enjoy God's word together. I'd like to call your attention to a text in Romans chapter 1. I'm teaching on Wednesday night on Romans, so I thought, well, I better stick in Romans here. Something I know a little about here, I think. Uh, I want to call our attention particularly to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. But I thought I would read the introductory verses here. And as you uh, notice, as I read along here in Romans 1, you might notice the number of times Paul mentions the word gospel. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. And this one is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him, we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I have among the other Gentiles." I am obligated both to the Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, 
the righteous will live by faith. This letter to the Christians in the city of Rome is about the gospel. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, you'll remember that the Apostle Paul, in the book of Acts, went on a series of what we call missionary journeys. He travels around through the eastern part of the empire. He's evangelizing Gentiles mainly. He is winning people to Christ. He's establishing churches in that region. He writes a number of letters to those churches in the eastern part of the empire. And those letters are in the New Testament. Philippians and Corinthians and Ephesians, Thessalonians. And according to what Paul says in this book in chapter 15 of Romans, he now believes at this time in his life that he has pretty much finished up his ministry in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. And he wants to move on to the western part of the Roman Empire. And the first place Paul would like to visit is the capital of Rome itself, the city of Rome. Now, there's already a church in Rome that had been established, not by Paul, but by other Christians, some years before. Paul wants to visit there, so he is now writing to the church to prepare the way for his visit that he hopes will be very soon. So what does Paul write about? What is Paul's concern in this letter? Well, Rome was a city filled with all kinds of problems, all kinds of social problems. Rome was a, a city with so many problems, you might have expected Paul to take on some of those problems, to deal with some of the pressing issues of the day. Rome was a city of slaves, but Paul doesn't preach against slavery. It was a city of lust and vice. It was a wicked place, but Paul doesn't aim his mightiest guns at those evils. It was a city of gross economic injustice which had been erected and was prospering on violence, the violence of war and the aggression of the Roman Empire. But Paul doesn't deal with any of those problems head on. Social reform in Rome was not Paul's concern. What was Paul's concern? Paul's concern was the gospel. The gospel is the theme of the book of Romans, and the proclamation of the gospel was the driving force in Paul's life. It's what motivated Paul. It's what he lived for. Earlier we read in, in verse 15 of uh, Romans 1, Paul says, I am eager to preach the gospel to those of you who were in Rome. I'm eager to preach the gospel. But what is this gospel that Paul was eager to preach? The word gospel, as you well know, means good news. It's the good news about Jesus Christ. And we think of the good news, um, at least many of us, our minds turn to another passage where Paul sort of explains the gospel. You remember that passage in an earlier letter 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4 especially. But let me read that to you. You don't have to turn if you don't like. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he says there in verse 1, 
Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you believed in vain. Then he says in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So Paul says, I passed on to you what was of first importance. What is of first importance? The gospel. And what is the gospel? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. Now, there's, there's a lot of things in that passage. There's a lot of theology in those verses that really need to be unpacked to fully understand all that Paul is saying there. But it gives us a basic summary of the content we think of the gospel. When we look back at our text this morning, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, we see that Paul sort of also explains the gospel here in a different way. He gives what many would say would be a definition of the gospel or a, or a kind of explanation. He, des- he defines the gospel by, gospel by stressing what it can do. He defines the gospel by stressing what it can accomplish. He says, it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. So he first explains the gospel by saying the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone believes. And secondly, in verse 17, he says and explains how the gospel is able to accomplish what it does. How is it that the gospel is able to bring salvation to everyone who believes? He says it's because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now this morning, I'd like us to briefly look at uh, three things that Paul says about the gospel here in verses 16 and 17. The first thing I notice here in verse 16 that Paul says about the gospel, he says that you and I, as believers, should not be ashamed of the gospel. We should not be ashamed of the gospel. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, most of us who've been Christians for at least some time, I think if we are completely honest, we have to admit that at some time we've been ashamed of the gospel. Why is that? Why have we been ashamed of the gospel? Well, there's a lot of things that go into that. But certainly a big reason is we just don't appreciate the reaction we get (laughs) when people find out we're Christians or when we talk to them about the gospel. It's not always a pleasant thing, is it? People sometimes mock us. They sometimes scorn us. They often reject us. They laugh at us. They ridicule us. They ridicule the message. They make fun of the message. They hold us in contempt. They think we're silly. They think we're foolish. And no one likes that. 
But there's nothing surprising about that reaction. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the message of the cross, that's the gospel, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Paul expected that. You, gotta, you have to expect that. The message, the gospel, is going to be considered foolishness to those who are perishing. The people on the world of the world look upon the gospel as foolishness. He continues in chapter 2 of that same book, 1 Corinthians 2.14, when he says, The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. You see, the gospel is not a message that people are really longing to hear. It's something they need to hear, but it's not something that they're really longing to hear. In Galatians 5.11, Paul speaks about the offense of the cross, the stumbling block of the cross. You see, people are offended by a message, by the gospel, by the good news, because the good news also contains some bad news. The gospel also contains some very bad news, and people don't want to hear that. The good news, of course, is that Christ has died for sinners, you and me. But the bad news is we're sinners. And the fact that we're sinners is not something people naturally want to hear. Paul will say in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and shall fall short of the glory of God. And in 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's eternal death. Nobody wants to be told that they are condemned to an eternity in hell. No, no one really wants to hear that. So it's not surprising that we're sometimes ashamed to tell the truth about the eternal destiny of people outside of Christ. But if we are ashamed of the gospel, if we don't understand or we have forgotten if we're ashamed of the gospel, or if we have forgotten what Paul says next here is, is very important. If we're ashamed of the gospel, it's because we don't understand or we have forgotten what Paul says next. And what he says next in the latter part of verse 16 is that the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. If we're ashamed of the gospel, then we don't understand or we have at least forgotten this important fact. The gospel is the power of God that brings salvation. Paul says we should not be ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. It's true, as we previously noticed in 1 Corinthians 1.18, that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But Paul goes on to say in that same verse, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel is powerful, and only it can transform a sinner into a saint. The gospel is not just a bunch of good advice to people. It's not just advice that tells them how they can lift themselves up or how they can save themselves. No, the gospel is power. It lifts people up. It changes people from the inside out. 
Sometimes people, you can get people to admit that they're, they've got problems. People will sometimes admit that they're sick of their situation, that they're sick of their lives. They will sometimes try to make changes for the better. But they just can't seem to do it. They, they seem to struggle so much. Why is that? Well, Paul will later say in Romans 3.9 that outside of Christ, we are all under the power of sin. Sin, Paul explains in Romans chapter 6, is like a master who rules over us. We're like slaves, Paul says. He uses the language of mastery and bondage. Those outside of Christ are in bondage to sin. We're slaves to sin. People think, they, people think they're free to do what they wish. They say, well, if I wanted to stop you know, smoking, I could stop smoking. Or if, you know, if I wanted to stop drinking, or if I wanted to change my life in some way, I could do it. I could do it if I wanted to. But it's really not that easy, is it? Sin is an all-powerful master. That's why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. That's why Paul is not ashamed because, and that's why he's driven to proclaim the gospel because the gospel and nothing else is the power of God that brings salvation. The gospel and nothing else, no psychology, no philosophy, no program, nothing but the gospel and only the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. If we are ashamed of the gospel, it could be because we have forgotten about the power of the gospel. When I look around this congregation this morning, I see a lot of power. There's a lot of gospel power in this group this morning. I confess your pastor has told me many stories about you. Not, it's not that. No, it's not, not what you're thinking about. <laughs> Nothing inappropriate. He hasn't told me anything inappropriate. But over the years, he's told me stories about how many of you were saved. He's told me your testimony. And it's a thrilling thing, I'll tell you. It's an uplifting thing to hear about how many people were saved in this church. It's a real blessing to hear these testimonies. It's a thrilling thing. I often relay them to my wife. And all we can say is the power of the gospel. The power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. So Paul says in our text this morning, in the first place, we should not be ashamed of the gospel because in the second place, the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation. And thirdly, and finally he says, the gospel is able to bring about salvation to everyone who believes because, in verse 17, the gospel gives a righteousness from God. The gospel is able to bring this salvation. It has this power to transform lives because the gospel confers upon us, it gives to us what Paul calls a righteousness from God. Paul says in verse 17, 
For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The gospel has the power to bring salvation to everyone who believes because the gospel, in the gospel, Paul says, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's nearly impossible to talk about this verse, verse 17, without reference to Martin Luther. Luther, as I'm sure many of you are aware, was the man whose act of posting his 95 theses on the door, the church door at Wittenberg, Germany in 1517, actually not too far, October the 31st, 1517. He's the man with that act who is credited with starting the Protestant Reformation. We are in this church today in part because of what Luther did on that day and what he believed and taught. Luther grew up in a humble family. His father was a simple man. He was a miner, had a difficult life. And so his father wanted a better life for his son. He wanted Luther to be a lawyer. And so Luther was a smart kid, and he pursued that goal. He worked and got some education and went down that path toward being trained as a lawyer. And he was a Roman Catholic, and uh, he was somewhat devout. And he, like all people in that age, were trying to be saved by their good works. And Luther uh, got, uh, during that time, he got into a storm, a a terrific storm, a horrendous storm, a thunderstorm, lightning all around him, and he feared for his life. And like a lot of people do when they become fearful, they cry out to God, you know. God saved me. And he did, but he he didn't cry out to God, he cried out to St. Anne. St. Anne is the patron saint of miners. (laughs) And so he cried out and he said, uh, in panic, Uh, Save me, St. Anne, and I'll become a monk. Well, he didn't die, so (laughs) he became a monk. He joined the Augustinian monastery. And he was an extraordinarily successful monk. He was a smart guy. He studied. He tried to understand Roman Catholic theology, and he worked hard. He devoted himself to being a monk. He, He devoted himself to prayer. He devoted himself to fasting. He went without sleep. He endured bone-chilling cold without a blanket, hoping this would make him more holy and more righteous. He beat himself, bloodied himself to try to atone for his sins. He later commented, he said, If anyone could have earned heaven by the life of a monk, it was I. But he found no peace for his soul in all this. He, he couldn't get relief. He was trying to please God by his own good works. Luther had been taught in his studies that this phrase, the righteousness of God, referred to God's active personal righteousness of justice by which he punishes the unrighteous sinner. He called it God's condemning righteousness. God's condemning righteousness. And when Luther read 
Romans 1.17, and he spent a lot of time here, that's what he thought. He thought about God condemning sinners. When he read Romans 1.17, he could only see bad news. The righteous God condemns us sinners. Here's what he says in his own words, I'll quote. As a monk, I led an irreproachable life. Nevertheless, I felt that I was a sinner before God. My conscience was restless, and I could not depend on God being propitiated by my satisfactions. Not only did I not love God, yes, I actually hated the righteous God who punished sinners. Thus, a furious battle raged within my perplexed conscience. But meanwhile, I was knocking at the door of this particular Pauline passage, earnestly seeking to know the mind of the great apostle. Day and night I tried to meditate upon the significance of these words. Then finally God had mercy on me, and I began to understand that the righteousness of God is the gift of God by which a righteous man lives, namely faith. And that this sentence, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, is passive, indicating the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now I felt as though I had been reborn altogether and had entered paradise. When Luther discovered, and what he discovered was that the phrase, the righteousness of God in Romans 1.17, does not refer to God's condemning righteousness, but to his saving righteousness. The gospel is the power of God that brings salvation because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. God's gift of righteousness to everyone who trusts in Christ by faith. It is righteousness that God gives to us. Righteousness that God puts to our account. It is righteousness, a right standing with God that comes from God and is credited to us. Uh, Theologians call this imputed righteousness. God, because we believe in Christ, imputes to us a right standing. Luther called it alien righteousness because he says, this righteousness that God has put to my account is alien to me. It's somebody else's. It's Christ. Paul speaks about this truth very clearly in other places and kind of explains it even more. I want to turn to a couple of passages here. First of all, I want to look at Romans chapter 10, particularly at verse 3. Romans chapter 10 and verse 3. Now maybe I'll begin reading here at verse 1 just to get the context here. But Paul explains more clearly this righteousness from God and how it works. Paul says in Romans 10, 1, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they do not know the righteousness of God, they don't understand that the righteousness of God is a gift that he gives to us and puts to our account, 
They did not understand the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. That's what we try to do. We try to establish our own righteousness by our performance and good works, hoping God will accept that. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Paul explains this in another place very well, too. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9. Paul has some helpful thoughts here to get our minds around this concept of God's righteousness that's given to us. Let me begin reading in verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, that is, in my previous life in Judaism, when I was trying to work my way to heaven by doing all these good works, by keeping the law, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may be, that I may gain Christ. Verse 9, and be found in him, be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, which comes from the law. I don't want to be found having a righteousness of my own, a self-righteousness, a works righteousness. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul says that God confers on those who believe righteousness from God. That is a right standing with God. You see, you and I need righteousness because we have none. We have none that's acceptable to God. What we have is really a false righteousness which God does not accept. Isaiah 64, 6, the prophet says, All our righteous acts are as filthy rags. We are sinners condemned before a holy and a righteous God. We have no righteousness that would commend us to God. In salvation, God imputes or credits to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ on the cross. Paul explains this in another passage, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says this, I'll just read it here for you. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, he's talking about Christ there. God made him, God made Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us. This is what's called the great exchange, the great exchange. Something was exchanged. God made Christ, who had no sin of his own, he was sinless, the Son of God, to be sin for us, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Christ became sin for us. Our sin was credited to Christ. It was imputed to Christ. It was put on Christ. And what did we get in return? We got the righteousness of Christ on our account. So when God looks at us, he views us through the righteousness of Christ. It's not our own. It's a gift. How do we receive this righteousness? 
Well, Paul tells us in the latter part of verse 17, it's by faith. He says it's a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. It's a righteousness that's by faith. That's just another way of saying that salvation is completely by faith. It's not by our own works. It's important to note here that the faith that we're talking about is not something that we possess independently of the gospel. This faith is not something we work up in ourselves. This faith is an openness to God. It's a believing in God that comes to us when we hear the gospel. It's something God creates, and it's an openness that God creates in our hearts as we hear the gospel. Let me draw some conclusions here, and then we'll close. Paul says that we should not be ashamed of the gospel because because the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And this is possible, Paul says, because when we believe, God credits to us unworthy sinners the righteousness of his own son, Jesus Christ. Righteousness does not mean in this case that we are internally transformed. God's interested in our internal transformation. He provides for that internal transformation. That's what Paul calls our sanctification. Paul discusses that later in Romans. But that's not what righteousness is about here. That's not what righteousness is is talking about. When we trust Christ as Savior, we are counted as righteous before the judge. We are declared righteous before the judge. We are declared to be right even though we are still sinners. This is a legal declaration. We're in the courtroom, Paul says. I think it's a, a failure to understand this truth that accounts for some people struggling with the assurance of their salvation. They unfortunately still cling to the idea that somehow their relationship to God, their standing before God, depends on their own obedience, their own righteousness. There's a young lady who calls me at my office at work every so often. I don't really know her, but she calls me because she thinks she's committed the unpardonable sin the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I've done some writing on this subject, and it's out there on the Internet, so people think now I'm an expert, and they call me, (laughs) or they come by my office. (laughs) Your pastor has actually been in my office when this unfortunate girl calls, and uh, it's a tough thing to deal with her. She's got, you know, a number of things going on, I think. But I think part of her problem, and the problem with others who struggle with assurance, and maybe some of you who struggle with assurance, I think part of the problem is they're not really clinging to Christ and his righteousness, but are somehow still fixed on their own performance. They're trying to gain favor with God through their own works. And when people do this, they're ignorant of the fact that God really demands perfection. They're ignorant of the depths of their own sin. We've got to cling to Christ, friends. And we've got to rest in his perfect righteousness. That's the only way we'll ever have the kind of assurance that God wants us to have. 
Paul's theology, I think, is kind of wonderfully expressed in the words of a great hymn, I'm sure you've sung before, by Edward Moat called The Solid Rock. It goes like this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the righteousness of Christ, which has been imputed to our account has been credited to us, and God views us as righteous in Christ, and therefore on the judgment day we can stand before Christ knowing that we're accepted of God, not because of ourselves, but because we are in Christ and Christ is in us. Help us to gain strength and courage through that truth, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.